Second Peter chapter 1. Last time we were together, we looked at it, we jumped into it, we saw that long list beginning in verse 5, um, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we looked at this last time we were together, about two Wednesdays ago. And our Christian life, our Christian walk, it's just to continually be maturing. Every week, every month, every year, every decade, we should be able to look back on our lives and say, wow, Lord, how you've matured me. Lord, how you've grown me. Lord, there's these things I used to struggle with, and Lord, I still struggle with them, but Lord, how you've given me strength and power over them. Lord, these relationships, they were bursting at the seams. They were breaking. But Lord, look at the work that you've done in me and through me. Our whole Christian walk should be constantly maturing and growing. In verse 8 and verse 9, it tells us that if this list is ours and abounds, that we will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this list of characteristics shouldn't just be a list that we're dreaming to one day have. No, this list should be evident in our lives today. And it's not just a little bit. It says that these things would be ours, right? These things are yours and abound, not just tiny glimpses of these things happening in our lives, but that these character traits, right, this list that Peter gives us would be abounding in our lives. And if they are abounding, it's proof that we truly know Jesus. And if that list is abounding, then our lives, our Christian walk, it's not going to be barren. It's not going to be unfruitful, but it's going to be filled with joy and fruit and blessings from on high. You could turn quickly to John chapter 15, and there Jesus gives us such an important scripture, such an important scripture when it comes to how can we bear fruit. And it all comes down to being plugged into Jesus. John 15 verse 4, it says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Again, our walk with Christ needs to be being about abiding with Christ. 
Again, we don't have a religion. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's certain things we do on a consistent basis, but this whole thing is all about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that these things can be ours and abounding, right? We can have this list for a small season in life. Maybe you're trying to impress a girl or a guy or her family, right? So you put on your best behavior and, oh, so much virtue, right? Such an amazing person, such a this, such a that, until someone cuts you off in traffic, right? Until someone fires you, until something says something about you, and then that whole list is just disappeared. It's vanished out of nowhere. The only way these things can be ours and abounding, the only way that true work in the heart can take place is if we are abiding with Jesus. And then Peter goes on to tell us if these things are not present within our lives, not only will we be barren and unfruitful, but we will become short-sighted to the point of blindness. We will forget the work that Jesus has done in our lives. Chuck Smith, he says, if we stop developing spiritually, our lives become barren and we become blind to our true condition. How maybe you're here and your Christian walk, it's completely barren. It's a wasteland. It's those 30 seconds in those Western movies, right, where they just pan and it's just a desert and, right, just things rolling around in the wind. And that's your Christian walk, but you have become so blinded to it You don't even realize it. You're just living in a dead religion. You're just living on the past relationship that you once had with the Lord. You've become short-sighted. We can become so short-sighted that we only pay attention to the things right in front of us. We're only paying attention to the social media right in front of us. We're only paying attention to our phone when it dings or bings. We're only paying attention to the different things happening right now forgetting about the things that we should truly be prioritizing in our lives, forgetting about the eternal life that Jesus has in store for us. But because we've become, un- because we've become barren, we're short-sighted, and now we're not even thinking about Christ. We're not even thinking about our eternity. We're not even thinking about how is this going to affect my life, my children's life, my family's life. And now we're making short sided decisions. David Guzik, he says, perhaps this one has forgotten how bad he was and how much he needed the cleansing, right? Sometimes we think we're better than other people. That person, they're a real sinner. Me, I'm not that bad. I've been in church for 10 years. I'm, I'm clean. I'm amazing, right? He continues, he says, perhaps this one has forgotten the great cost of this purging of sin's dirty stain." Right? Sometimes we forget about the cost that Jesus had to die to take my place. Right? We're blessed. We get to take communion tonight. And that reminder that death had to take place, the death of an innocent had to take place in order to forgive us, in order to give us that restoration between us and God. Finally, he says, perhaps this one has forgotten how great and complete the cleansing is making a once guilty sinner now as pure and as white as snow. Sometimes we forget that once we've accepted Jesus into our lives and that's been done, we are justified, just as if we never sinned. 
It's not now we need to do more work to, yeah, yeah, I really am justified. Or, oh, no, I blew it. Now I'm not justified anymore. No, that work is done, paid in full, paid on the cross. Now we're just walking in that. Now we're just abiding in those truths. Family, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that you have been cleansed from your old sins, past tense? That's not your life anymore. You've been cleansed from it. It's not that you're missing out from it. No, you've been cleansed from it. Are you going back to your old sins? Are you lying to yourself, dreaming them up? Oh, they were so beautiful. Ay, que lindo, right? Those are sins. Those were gross. Those were terrible. We've been cleansed from those things. He continues then in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. That word diligent, it's to give a lifelong effect. My whole life is to be dedicated to make, that's to make as much as depends on me, my call and my election sure. Because if I do these things, I will never stumble. Right? What a glorious promise that if we give our life's work, if we say, I'm dedicating my life to be a lifelong pursuit, to grow in the calling that God has put in my life as much as depends on me, that's a safe place to be. That's a place where God tells us, you're never going to stumble. You're never going to fall to the point that there's no turning back, right? Proverbs tells us a righteous man, even he falls, right? But he gets up again. For us, is that your lifelong pursuit? To make your calling and election sure? To make sure that I am continually growing in this list, that this list is abounding in my life? What that's really showing is that we're looking more and more like Jesus. That's all that this list is showing, that if these things are continually growing and abounding in us, we're looking more and more like Christ. And when we look more and more like Christ, we can be certain of our calling and election. Now notice, this verse 10, it's not for us to make our calling and election sure to God. God already knows. Oftentimes, we're the ones that need to be reminded, oh yeah, this is for real. This calling and this election, it is real. God has really called me. He's really elected me. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. And here we see again the power of Christ predestining us and calling us and justifying us. But notice what we are predestined to be and to do. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. It tells us, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified." Now, there's been battles over centuries over the scriptures, right? But we just want to focus in on verse 29 here, right? It tells us that for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Family, are you conforming more to the image of Jesus Christ? Because if you are, you're making your calling and election sure. If you're looking less and less like Jesus 
then you're living in a gray area. You're living in a question mark. Because if you're saying, I'm going to heaven when I die, then you're saying you've been predestined by God to be made into the image of his son. So if your life's work is not being made into the image of his son, there's questions that need to be asked. There are things that need to be addressed. So again, as you look at your Christian walk, have you been conformed to the image of Jesus? 2021, can you look at January to now in June and say, wow, I look more like Jesus today? Our greater question is, can the people around you say, you look more like Jesus today, right? Can your wife or your husband say, yeah, you look more like Jesus today? Can your kids say, yeah, dad, yeah, mom, you look more like Jesus today? Are we being conformed to the image of his son? That's why, again, if we are continually growing in that list from 1 Peter, if it's continually abounding in our lives, then we are making that call and election sure within our own lives. Right? I think we've all been there. We fall into sin, and then all of a sudden we think, you know what? I'm not even saved. I know none of you guys have ever had that thought before, right? But you, you fall, you sin, and you say, you know what? I don't even think I'm saved. I messed up. I lost it. I've gotten too dark. I've gotten... And oftentimes we fall into sin, and now we live in this murky middle ground. And instead of getting up and running full force to God... We just say, you know what, I'm just going to wallow here in my pity and in my sin. Instead of getting up and running to make our call and election sure to remind us, okay, God really did call me and elect me. We just say, I just want to lay down here in the mud. I just want to lay down here in this middle ground, in this mud, this wallow, this gross, this uncertainty. When Peter's telling us, no, make your calling and election sure. Do all that you can to run towards that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you could run over there, turn over there. Paul gives us a great analogy with the mindset that we should have when it comes to our walk, or should I say our race with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Here Paul, he tells us, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run, thus not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Again, this is the mindset that we should have in our race, in our Christian lives, in making our calling and election sure. It shouldn't just be, ah, God's going to hand out participation trophies, right? God's just going to let me in. God, he's gracious, he's kind. Yes, he's gracious and kind, but he's so gracious, he's so kind, he's so loving that we should want to give him our all. Much less, right? Verse 27, that now when we preach to others, that we would become disqualified. Right? I hope you don't want that for your life. You're trying to share the gospel with someone, and yet they can point out to a huge sin in your life that you are not repentant of. And you just, just have to stay quiet. And now it's different when they're bringing up a past sin 
that you've gone to the Lord. That's why it's so important for us if you've sinned against someone, if you actually go up to them and apologize and say, man, forgive me for doing this. I was a bad representation of a Christian and of what Jesus has done in my life. Then you can continue to share the gospel with them. Don't let those passions hold you back from sharing the gospel. No, we should be disciplining our body and bringing it into subjection. We should be running our race with the mindset that only one person obtains the prize. And again, if this is the mindset that we have with our relationship in Jesus Christ, it keeps us from stumbling. It keeps us from falling into sin. It keeps us from getting into trouble. If we are continually growing and progressing with Jesus, it's a great place to be. It's an amazing place to be. So again, I encourage you, if you've been struggling with sin a lot in this season, perhaps you're not really trying that hard to grow and mature with Jesus. Perhaps you got too much time on your hands, right? Too much energy for sinful things. We were just at uh, the East Coast Pastors Conference and Bobby Hardgraves, he goes, all you young men, all you teenagers, you got to listen to the Bible as much as you can and just run as long as you can. That way, late at night, you're too tired to do anything bad. <laughs> Many of us, were getting into trouble with sin because you're just being lazy with your walk with God. You've never spent so much time in serving and worshiping and going on mission trips that you're just saying, I'm too tired to do anything else. Lord, I just want to grow with you more and more. Jesus, I just want to see these things abounding in my life. Verse 11, it says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we see that Peter, he's not nearsighted at all. Peter here is reminding us, he's wanting us to be conscious of what our entrance into heaven, what is it going to be like? Family, have you given time to think about that? What is your departure from this life going to look like? We live in a season where people are living in fear. They're afraid for their lives, and they're holding on as desperately as they can in order to protect their own lives. Have you thought about what those moments are going to look like for you when your departure from this planet has come? When that time, that date that God knows, this is the day I plan for Zach to be born, and this is the day that I plan for Zach to graduate from this life. Have you thought about what is that going to look like? What is that going to feel like? Will you be clinging to this life because you're not sure? Are you going to be grabbing onto the hospital bed shaking? No, I can't go now. I still have more to do. You're not sure if you were saved or not. You're not sure if you did enough for the Lord or will you be at peace saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to go on this cruise. I am ready to see my Lord. I am ready to see my master. Will you be begging for a second chance so you could do more for the kingdom? Will you be begging for a second chance so that you can make your own calling and election sure? Or will you be at peace saying this life was just a tent? This life was simply a vapor. I am about to go home. Will you be ready or will you have a ton of doubt? Saying I don't know what's going to happen. All right? That's why it's so important for us to take those steps of faith in this life now. If you're not taking steps of faith now in this life, how in the world are you going to take the biggest step of faith 
the biggest step into the unknown that anyone has ever gone through. We need to be ready. And that's what Peter's reminding us of, that an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Peter didn't want these Christians to get into church and go, woof, man, the smoke almost got me. Still smelling like smoke. You were right there in hell and you were able to pull up the plane before you got there. That wasn't Peter's desire. Going to this portion of scripture, I always think of Jimmy O'Keefe. I don't know how many of you guys were there in that doulos. We were there in the house. We all had our own word, our own word Bible study, right? But he talked about this, that there's two different types of football plays on, on SportsCenter Top 10. I don't remember last time I was SportsCenter. But, right, there's two different types of touchdown plays. There's the one when the guy just breaks everybody's ankles and he's running for 60 yards. No one's around him. He's dancing. He's messing around. And there's no doubt that it's a touchdown. But then sometimes there's that play where you got the 22 bodies on the goal line. Can't see anything. You see a bunch of guys in tights, right? Can't see the ball anywhere. And then there's this review and that review and the other review Call to this place, is it a touchdown, is it not? Is it a touchdown, is it not? Which touchdown would you rather score? What is your life going from this life to your real life in heaven? What is it going to look like? Is there going to be no contest, no question mark in anybody's mind? Of course Zach's going to heaven. Or in your own mind, right, making or calling an election sure. Or will there need to be a ton of reviews? You're calling everybody. How will I pray for me that I make it into heaven, right? Hopefully that's not you. That you can have no doubts in your mind. F.B. Meyer, he says, there's two ways of entering into a port. A ship may come in waterlogged and crazy, sinking, being kept afloat by a continual working at the pumps, or it may enter in with every sail set and open. The latter is what the apostle desires for himself and those who he addresses. He desired that they would have an entrance abundant, that it would be ministered unto them. The idea of this abundant entrance was really a choral entrance. The idea was of a Roman conqueror coming into his city, welcomed by singers and musicians who would join in with him in a glorious, happy procession into the city. Will your entrance into heaven be like that? Will you enter it save so as by fire or to receive a reward? Will you come in unrecognized and unknown? Or will you be welcomed by scores and hundreds to whom you have been the means of blessing and who will wait for you? Again, family, what will your entrance into heaven look like? Will there be 10 people, 20 people, 100 people waiting for your entrance, saying, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for so-and-so. Or will you enter into heaven and everybody's just going to look around, man, that guy still smells like smoke. I don't know who that guy is. All right, good to see you. And just walk on by. What will your entrance look like? Again, that's why it's so important that we make our calling and election sure. Not that we would remind God, no, God, I really am saved. No, that we would be able to remind ourselves, yes, Lord, I belong to you. Lord, I am abiding with you. Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Verse 12, we see why this is weighing on Peter's heart. In verse 12, 
He says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And isn't so much of our life being reminded of the things we already know? Right? How often do we need to be reminded of things? How often do we remind our kids of things, right? Hey, I need you to clean your room. You walk away, you come back in, and they're just somewhere else, right? Didn't I just tell you to clean your room? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot, right? Our whole lives is being reminded thing after thing after thing. And family, when we enter into church, we shouldn't come in desiring, Lord, let me hear something I've never heard before. That's dangerous territory. When you go into a church and they're saying all types of things that you've never heard before, that's dangerous territory. But instead, we should be desiring, Lord, remind me of what I need to be reminded of today. Lord, remind me. It's all in your word. And how much of scripture is a continual reminder the Lord loves you. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. Sin is deadly. God is good, right? All throughout scripture, it's the same reminders over and over again. In Romans 15, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, as reminding you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, Paul, he tells Timothy, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. All throughout Scripture, there is a continual reminder that we need to be reminded of certain things over and over and over again. Right? When was the last time you were at church and you said, wow, I've never heard of that before? Or when was the last time you were at church and saying, wow, Lord, I needed to be reminded of your love today. I needed to be reminded of your forgiveness today. Lord, I needed to be reminded of the price of the cross for my sins. Lord, I needed that reminder today. Again, family, there's so much to master when it comes to the fundamentals of our Christian walk. We have no reason to try to overlook them and try to find something new to get obsessed with. Oftentimes, there's different people that come to church, and people find problems with just like random funny things, right? People, they got problems with certain types of Bible translations or certain instruments in church or certain colors in church, and you're just like, how's your marriage going? Let's not talk about that, right? Let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about how this is what's wrong, right? We have so many basic things, so many fundamentals that we need to grow in. Let's become, right, obsessed on making that call and election sure. Be based, be just based in making those fundamentals growing in our walk and life, right? The great prophet Bruce Lee, he said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Again, family, what kind of a believer are you? Are you just chasing whatever's new? Oh man, have you read this book? Have you seen this thing? Have you seen that thing? Have you seen this church? What they're doing, this is amazing. Are you just that base, that simple Christian that you can stick in through thick and thin? Things are up, things are down. You're just growing in those fundamentals in Christ. You're being reminded 
of those things. Verse 13, he says, yes, I think it is right. He's saying it is necessary as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Again, Peter saw this life and this body as only a tent. That this life, this body, it was not his home. It was simply a tent that he's one day going to close up to move into his true home. Now, we've talked about it. I, don't, I hope none of you, right? You have a U-Haul every time you go on vacation. You're bringing all your family portraits and you're putting them in the hotel room. You're changing things around. You're calling to remodel the bathroom at the Holiday Inn Express. They're saying, what are you doing, right? No, this is temporary. This is one day. This is one week. I don't have to do all this work because that's not my home. That's the way we need to look at this life. This life is not our home. We are simply passing through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, you can just write it down for the sake of time. It says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, this world is not our home. This body is not the body that we will spend the rest of our life in. John 14, verse 2 and 3, Jesus, he tells the disciples, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, Jesus is preparing our eternal bodies. That's what he's working on. Joe Foshi said it's funny, right? If it took God six days to make the whole entire universe, imagine how amazing our bodies are going to be, right? Jesus has been working on them for like 2,000 years, right? What's going on here? We got to go. It's time to go home already, right? He's been preparing these mansions for us. But this life to Peter, it was just a tent. He's just passing on through. He's not arguing with other people that his tent is nicer than other people's tents, Right? He's not looking at people in church saying, oof, your tent is messed up, right? He's not doing that. It's just a tent. We're just passing on through. And he's saying as long as he's still alive, that he needs to be stirring up these believers by reminding them. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off, there it is again, my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Right? Was Peter depressed? Was Peter just that Eeyore Christian? Did he just have a death wish and he was looking for some action to die? Not at all. Jesus showed him what his death would look like. And apparently through the Holy Spirit, he knew that his time was drawing near. You could write down John chapter 21, verse 18 and 19. Jesus, he tells Peter, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. We hear altar calls about how Jesus is going to solve all your problems, right? Imagine this being the altar call. Let me tell you how if you walk in this life with Christ, this is how you're going to die. This is how you're going to be put to death, crucified upside down, and then asking, hey, come and follow me. Are you willing to follow me even in and through this? 
This is what Jesus has done with Peter. Peter knows that his days are coming. The time is coming short when he's going to get to see his master face to face. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Again, Peter hoped that even after his death, this letter would be a reminder and a source of encouragement for all of the young church that is here blossoming and growing. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, it tells us, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Again, this Christian faith that we have, but especially what we look at as church or the way church is to be conducted, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of it, and now all these epistles, all the prophets, all the apostles and their word, this is what we take as the foundation of what should be in church and what should not be in church. Then he goes into verse 16, and uh, next time we're together, we'll begin looking at uh, just the fun chapters of looking at false teachers. But in verse 16 through 21, here he reminds the people of what they believe and the power of what they believe. Verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he receives from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, he's reminding them, this is not just a myth. This is not just a fairy tale. And even till today, people argue, they've been arguing for centuries that the Bible is just a fairy tale. Ah, you believe that there's a God up in heaven, ah, the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny too. And yet the Bible still stands. It's been attacked for centuries. It's been attacked for the last 2,000 years. And I promise you, there's many more attacks coming against it. Soon if you hold true to what the Bible deems as marriage and sex and gender, they're going to look at you like an outlaw. They're going to look at you like a monster. But these are the things we need to hold on to because these are not just cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, the power of God's word and the testimony of Jesus defeating death has been under attack since the moment that Jesus defeated death. If you remember in Matthew chapter 11, verse, thir- verse 11 through 13, it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened, that Jesus has resurrected, that the stone was thrown away, that all the Roman centurions, right, they had fallen on their faces freaking out. And when they had heard all this, verse 12, they assembled with the elders and consulted together. And now they gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole them away while we slept. Again, since the moment that Jesus resurrected, people have been trying to say this is a lie. This is made up. 
This is just a myth. This is just a fable. This is just an allegory. This isn't real. But Peter's saying, no, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, I know all of you guys are great kids in high school and middle school, right? I wasn't that good of a kid in high school and middle school. But when you would get in trouble and now the teacher gets all the kids together and he says, whoever did it, tell me or you're going to get a zero. I'm going to call your mom or he starts giving the consequences. Sooner or later, kids start ratting each other out. It's just what happens, right? Now, can you imagine with these 12 disciples, if they say, you know what? Let's fight these Roman centurions. Let's roll away this one-ton rock. Let's take the body and hide it, and let's just say that he resurrected. What would the 12 disciples do when the first disciples put to death, right? When James is put to death for believing a lie, what are the other 11 going to do? No, 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 we just made this up, right? How many people are willing to die for a lie? And yet these men spend their entire lives sharing the gospel and being willing to be put to death, willing to see their own wives put to death in front of them and encouraging them to be reminded of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about attacking the Bible. It's always been about attacking the Bible. You can write down 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 8. There, Paul gives a great sort of history and all the people that have seen Jesus. He even makes mention of 500 people seeing him at once after he had been resurrected. This is not a fairy tale, family. This is the truth and power of God writing to mankind. Verse 17 and 18, it says, For he receives from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when we heard this, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Right? Peter's saying we were eyewitnesses of this. He's referencing here Mark chapter, two verse, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 7. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they led them up on a high mountain apart from themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus shined like the sun. Then Elijah appears to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I love that Mark puts in here. He says, because he did not know what to say, <laughs> for they were greatly afraid. And the cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Again, Peter's reminding the young church saying, guys, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen his power. I've seen his majesty. Hold on to these truths. Grow in him. Mature in him. Make your call and election sure. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. See, even here, Peter, he's giving us a great reminder of experience versus God's word. Personal experience versus God's word. If we're honest today in the day and age we live in, right? That's when Pastor Ken, he goes off on his tangent on how people and guys talk about my feelings. I just feel like, right? Our world today, everything is based on personal experience. That personal experience in today's culture trumps truth, if we're honest. 
And here, what Peter's showing us is that God's word is the ultimate truth that trumps even personal experience. Even if it's a great personal experience, because the personal experience that Peter had was seeing Jesus transfigured into his full state, to the point that he was shining like the sun. And yet in verse 19, he says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He's saying, it's great, it's incredible that I got to see Jesus looking like he truly is, but the prophetic word confirmed. Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was incredible, but the biblical scriptures being fulfilled had a much greater weight of who Jesus truly was. Again, family, we should judge our experiences by God's word. You don't judge God's word based on your experiences. Right? Some of us were blessed. We had an incredible father. Right? I had an incredible father. But in a room this size, there's many of you that you had a terrible dad. So now when God says that he's a perfect father, how do you look at God? My dad was a monster, so God has to be a monster. I want nothing to do with God, right? Jesus says he's our older brother. In a room this size, I'm sure that there's many of you that have terrible older brothers that perhaps have done nasty things to you. Do we now look at Jesus and say, because of my personal experience, this is who I see Jesus as? No. We go to the word, and we go to the word and allow the word to show us the truth of our personal experiences. So important for us. Adam Clark, he says, taken according to the common translation, it seems to say that prophecy is a surer evidence of divine revelation than miracles. And so it has been understood Again, the multitudes came to Jesus when he was doing his miracles. But at the end, when he was giving them the truth of God, the truth of God's word, the truth of the kingdom, they all left them. That's why he goes to the disciples, will you guys leave me too? Again, it's not about chasing miracles, chasing goosebumps. Here, my neck is standing up. That's not what it's about. It's about chasing God's word. That's what it's all about. David Guzik, he makes mention of this professor named Peter Stoner, and he calculated because there's over 332 distinct Old Testament predictions regarding the Messiah that Jesus has fulfilled perfectly, 332. I don't know how many mathematicians we have here, but I know we have a couple of math teachers. But he calculated that any one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is equal to a one in 100th quadrillion chance of happening. That's 10 to the 17th power, right? My brain doesn't compute that. But someone to actually do eight out of these 332 prophecies, it'll be one out of 10 to the 17th power. And now to do all, not even all, to do 48 out of these over 300 prophecies, would now the odds would become one to 10 to the 157th power. Again, it's literally impossible There could only be one. The power of Christ, it's in the word. It's not in our experiences or even biblical experiences for that matter, right? Peter says this experience was great and incredible, but the prophecies, this is where the power is at. Verse 20, he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. This is a great verse reference when a guy says, God has told me you're the one. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Just read that out loud when you go home, right? That's to tell us that God can speak to everyone and anyone. No one has a direct monopoly when it comes to hearing from God. 
Just like no one has a monopoly that they say, this is what God told me, and he's not going to tell anybody else. He's just going to tell me. Not at all. The prophecy of Scripture is not to private interpretation. The meaning of any Scripture and any prophecy is evident and can be confirmed by others. Don't let anyone tell you, oh, God gave me a private word for you. You say, God hasn't told me that. And our line of communication works just as great as your line of communication works with him. That's the way it works. Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, here, Peter is giving us a small window into how God's word was written. These men were moved by the Holy Spirit to pen these letters, to write this poetry, to write these history books. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. It has the same idea of being carried along. Like the wind that fills the sails of a ship and carries that boat along the water. That's how the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of these men to pen the letters. You can write down Acts 27 verse 15. There it speaks of a ship and a shipwreck being thrown into the wind. And it's the same word there in the Greek. Again, this was just the supernatural, supernatural working of God. That's the way the Lord moves. Oftentimes it's you hearing a word saying, Lord, I think that's you. Being able to stay quiet and then hear someone else say, man, I think God is calling me to do this. And you say, wow, Lord, that's amazing. That's incredible. Again, this was natural. It's not like Peter was in prison chained with the guards, right? And, oh, no, it's happening again. Get me the pen. Get me the pen. Letter. It's happening again, right? That's not the way it worked. The Holy Spirit didn't just fill Paul and he's just writing, I can't stop. That's not what's happening here. Right? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And again, family, finally, nothing is as powerful as the word of God. Nothing is as powerful. You're here in Maybe you have a relationship that is being blown apart. Your marriage is going through, through difficulties. You're struggling with addiction. There's tons of programs out there, but nothing is as powerful as the Word of God. Psalm 119 gets a bad rep because it's so long, but it's such a powerful chapter in God's Word because it's all about God's Word and how we should desire it, how we should want it. But in Psalm 119 verse 105, it says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Again, family, many people have to come to the realization, is this man's word to God? Is this what man thinks of God, or is this God's word to men telling us the truth? Finally, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, I love this scripture. It says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So again, what do you take this word as? Just people's idea of who God is and what he's done? Or do you take God's word as, Lord, this is you writing to me? It's powerful. It's more powerful than anything else. 
Because if you really believe that, there should be certain repercussions in your life. And as we talked about what is our entrance into heaven going to look like, what is our departure from this world going to look like, those are heavy consequences. And now if God's word is true, that if we're living in a life in abundant sin, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God, there's heavy consequences there. That if you really believe this, you're going to be willing to change your life and say, God, take me where I'm at. Lord, take all of me. Lord Jesus, I want to abide in you. Because your word says that if I don't abide in you, I can do nothing. 